0: Psalm chapter 2 is a psalm that kind of describes um, the three things that we see during the last week of Christ. Number one, that there is a king. There is a king, and that is King Jesus. Number two, we hated the king. We hated the king. Yes, we did. Yes, we may think we're a good person, that we don't do anything really bad. We don't maybe um, do what other people do. We compare ourselves with other people. But yet, we hated the king. And then number three, we need the king. We need the king, Jesus Christ. And I want to look at this, first of all, before we hit that, the first topic, the first point, that there is a king. When Jesus, in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, and I'm going to read this to you in the Lexham English Bible, and taking aside the 12, Jesus said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, remember last week we were talking about how Jesus takes his disciples into prayer? Jesus wants to take you and I into his plan. Jesus wants to take a teenager into the exciting plan of God that he has for your life. I remember as a 17 year old uh, just being in high school just flunking out of high school, no motivation for life. I was going nowhere. I was living in a small town in New England, um, very broken dysfunctional town and going nowhere and I just remember I had a teen leader I had a teen group I was part of a church that where I had Someone take my hand, not literally, but took my spiritual hand and led me into the plan of God, led me into an adventure, a faith adventure. And I went on a mission trip uh, to Sweden, and it changed my life. One week, just seven days of just outreach, just living, seeing mission, mission, mission life, changed my life. And it gave me a vision as a young person that was so far beyond my worldview. And I just want to say to the teenagers this morning that God has a plan for you. God wants to take you by His hand, take you by your hand and lead you into a faith adventure. And I think teenagers, young people are filled naturally with just um, like with this optimistic um, take, let's take the world attitude. And I think somehow as adults, we lose that. And I don't know what happens, but life happens. And we start thinking like rationally, maybe even cynically. And we begin to lose sight of this idea that God wants to use us to change the world. And I just want to say that to teenagers here today, is that the world is vying for your attention, for your energy. The world wants your energy. It wants it because it fuels itself. It wants your energy. It wants your vision. It wants your optimism. It wants wants your purity. But don't give it up. Because this is your purity. This is your soul. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in there. God lives in there. And I think that whenever we are... Whenever we are disrespectful to our temple, I think that's when the world and people want to come in and take something from you. And guess what? The idea is, is that, okay, if you let me take something, this is what the world says to you, or someone that doesn't respect you or your soul or your body, and they'll say, if you let me take something, an experience from you, then you're going to get an experience that you want. But guess what? It never works out that way. And if you bend down that road, it never works out that way. Never, ever, ever. <laughs> right? Amen? <laughs> It doesn't work that way. Just, you, and you want the next day, next morning, whatever, it's like you're robbed. So you're, something's missing in your life, and you feel like really like junk. And I just want to say that to the teenagers, that God wants to give you a vision. Come with us this summer on a mission trip. We'll raise the money. We'll make it happen. But somebody did that with me when I was a 17-year-old, and I tell you, it saved my life. And I came back. I remember going back to my last year of high school Nobody recognized me. They were just like, what happened to you? And I just said, God, God happened to me. And here's something, we have a king and that king wants to take us and he takes the disciples. We're gonna go to Jerusalem and all the things that were written by the prophets with reference to the son of man will be accomplished. I love that because Jesus is never caught by surprise about things. There's a plan. God's got a plan. And that's the most awesome plan. And guess what? You and I are creatures of God. And we are not going to be truly happy and satisfied until we get engaged into that plan. And when we get engaged in that plan, then we're going to sense this fulfillment. We're going to sense this satisfaction. For he handed over, in verse 32, over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were people that we know that were people that were not of the Jewish race. They were, they were every other nation, every other ethnicity that was not Jewish. And they were considered unholy. They were considered secondhand. They were considered the enemies of Israel. And that he would be handed over to the Gentiles and that he would be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. In verse 33, and after flogging him, flogging was this terrible whipping process that the Romans would do to people. They will kill him and on the third day he will rise. And I love this because there's never, whenever God reveals to you and I his plan, there's never a moment where it says, and then then we'll see what happens. You know, okay, we'll just kind of, we'll we'll just wing it, you know, and we'll just like, we'll see how it goes. We'll get over there. We'll figure it out when we get over there. No, Jesus says, he says to the disciples in the boat, we're going over to the other side. Then there's a storm. I will rise again on the third day. There's always a destination with God's plan, and that's why we can trust him. That's why we can trust him during this Palm Sunday and this Holy Week. The time had come for the Lord to make his official appearance to Jerusalem. This was his official introduction. Most of his ministry had had been spent outside and in and around Galilee, which is kind of like maybe the countryside. Maybe it wasn't the urban. It wasn't the cool, trendy areas. Galilee was kind of like where the working class people lived. It was like the countryside in a lot of ways. And he had now set his sights in the holy city, Jerusalem, for what he knew would be his final showdown with the religious leaders. Religious leaders, organized religion, the marginal, the marginal belief system of the time were his opponents. And it was a long walk, and it would require most of the day. Jesus was going to walk to Jerusalem most of the day. Zechariah 9, verse 9, says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, for your king comes to you. These are prophetic words from the from the prophet Zechariah, who was preaching during the time that Jerusalem was being rebuilt after the destruction of its enemies. Your king comes to you. Remember that. I want, and I want to close with this later on in the, in the message that the king comes to us. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey and on a male donkey, the fowl of a female donkey. And as he came to the twin villages of Bethpage and Bethany, and I like, when I read stories like this, I like to get the background. I like to see what's happening because, <coughs> excuse me, I grew up in a, there was a Sunday school that I went to and we got all of the traditional teaching and Jesus and the, and the disciples were all kind of, they all had this, you know, they looked like cal- they were like cartoon characters for me, and and when I when I read the back the the back the, the historical context of what's happening here, it makes it so much more real. And they're coming to the twin villages of Bethpage and Bethany on the eastern slope of Mount Olives. And Jesus sent two disciples ahead to fetch the donkey, and he knew that this donkey would be waiting there. And he cre- and he crested as he goes over the Mount Olives. Now, Mount Olives was a very important geographical place for Jesus because he would go there at night and pray. Like, everybody goes to sleep. Jesus leaves. He goes up onto this mountain. And it wasn't like mountain-like, you know, like, you know, Mount, like, you know, what are some high mountains? There's no high mountains here. Everest. High, But like it wasn't like Everest, right? He's not climbing Mount Everest. It was kind of like a very big um, kind of uh, hillish, hilly area, and he, he would go there, and he would go and pray. And when you think about the prayer life of Christ, it was we don't really know what he and his father are talking about because it was just private, beautiful, intimate communion that Jesus had with his father. And on Mount Olives, he would go there, and I think he's thinking that he goes up there and he's praying because he knows in the future that when he returns in the second coming after the rapture, after the, after the tribulation, you know, Jesus comes back and he lands on this mountain, Mount Olives. What an amazing place to be like, he would go there during this time of suffering and difficulty and the time of misunderstanding, people not understanding who Jesus was and that he, wouldn't be, that he wouldn't be accepted by his own people in Jerusalem. And he goes to this mountain and he goes and he prays. And he's on his face, he's on his knees before the Lord and he's thinking, I'm on my knees right now but one day I'll come back and I'll land on this mountain on my feet. And when I come down and my feet touch this mountain, the Bible says it splits open in the last days. This victorious moment it's preceded by much prayer, much, much weakness. And he goes to, he comes down the eastern slope of Mount Olives, and he's coming into the city. He, he sends his disciples ahead. They get this donkey. And Mount the, from Mount Olives, he could see the beautiful city spread before him. It was a beautiful panoram, panoramic view. Large crowds were arriving for the Passover. The Passover, do you remember, for those who don't remember what it is, the Passover was in Exodus chapter 12, when, the, when the, all the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. And God said, take a lamb, let him be with you for a week, and then, then um, slay him and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts. And then at night, the death angel would go through the city, through Egypt, and all the firstborn would die. And those that had the blood on the doorposts, on, um, on the area of the, of the front door, the death angel would pass by and, and this, the first son would, would be spared. And so Jesus here is coming down. And this is during this time of Passover. And this is a Friday, Saturday event. And it's very interesting that as he's going down um, through, through, down the Mount Olives and then through this, through this area, he's crossing over an, a valley called Kidron Valley. And during this time, during this weekend, and this is later in the week of the Holy Week, Friday to Saturday, And Saturday and onward, there was the Kidron Valley had a brook that went through it. And as Jesus was hanging on the cross, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I think it's it's pertinent to the to the context of what we're talking about here. As Jesus is on the cross and he's bleeding all of his blood out, it wasn't just a couple drops; it was everything that was in him. As he's bleeding, there there at the same time in the Jewish schedule, all of the lambs were being slain, and the blood of the lambs were going into this, into this river, Kidron River. And Jesus is on, this, on the cross, and he's suffering, and he's bleeding. And at the same time, the blood from all these lambs that were being slain for the deliverance of God's people from the death angel is flowing in the river. What an incredibly symbolic, timely event. And as he's walking into the city, there's large, joyful crowds both in front and behind him because they've heard that Jesus is on his way. To Jerusalem, That Jesus, the Messiah, the king, was coming and that he would bring, he would bring freedom. He would bring uh, release from the bondage of the Roman oppressive governments and, and, the, and the, um, the racketeering, we could call it, of the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And these oppressed people would be experiencing freedom, but not the way that they thought they would be. And these crowds were there. And, and in, we read in Psalm 118, 118 that this was the moment when they start crying out and we see this in Mark chapter 11, verses 9 through 10, that those that were went ahead and those that were behind shouting, Jesus, shouting to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. David, if you read the history of David, David wasn't a great guy. <laughs> he killed somebody to steal his wife, right? The mercy and the gentleness of God. I think David, we've said this before, David is very, Jesus is called the son of David, right? But I think David the psalmist, David the shepherd boy, David, uh, David that killed Goliath, we would have him speak in our churches, right? But would, we, would David the king who kills Uriah to steal his wife, you know? Would we have him preach in our churches today? It's the same man. It's the same grace. It's the same grace. It's the gentleness of God. And he says, blessed is the, is the, is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Guess what? It's the people that are crying this out, not the religious leaders, not the political leaders. It's the people. It's the common people. It's the, it's the, it's the people that just have nothing to lose, and they're crying out, and they're, they're recognizing, and they're, they're announcing Christ's coming into the city. And, of course, a contingent of the ever-present Pharisees were there. And some of them instructed Jesus to rebuke his, his followers and said, Tell your followers not to say that, because that's blasphemous. Because that verse is reserved for the Messiah when he comes into, into Jerusalem. And they're like, this is the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. And him coming in at this time, at this moment. And if you took the time, it's an amazing, interesting study. It takes some time. But if you go through the schedule of everything that Jesus does his last week, every hour every day every geographical location it has tremendous significance historically in the in the in the time and the timeline of israel it's incredible and one of the things is this is that for example that day which is is called really in the jewish calendar the 10th of the month of nisan n i s a n not nisan the car but n i s a n which is a jewish holiday and that holiday some incredible that day of the month in the in the jewish history was incredible because It was 483 years, for example, from the day the Persian king Artaxerxes had issued the decree authorizing the Jews on that day, on the 10th of Nisan, to rebuild Jerusalem. I want want you to rebuild Jerusalem. And guess what happens? He provides the tools and everything to move these stones and to put these stones back on top of each other and to rebuild Jerusalem. Why is that significant? Because the the Pharisees are saying to the disciples, Uh, to Jesus stop your disciples from blaspheming and what does Jesus say he says if they do not say this if they do not confess this then the rocks will cry out what are the rocks talking about the rocks are the very rocks of Jerusalem that were built 483 years before I never saw that until this morning when I was reading this through that the very rocks that the Jerusalem was built by at that at that day of 10th of Nisan 483 years earlier would have excuse me would have cried out Hosanna to the highest. And so when he's approaching the city, <coughs> excuse me, this was the day that was ordained in the history for the Messiah king to officially present himself to Israel. Daniel 9, verse 25. It's very interesting because this is the day in the Jewish calendar that the Israelites would take, um, would take their lamb, their little baby lamb, and they would bring it to the house that day. The day that he's walking into, into Jerusalem. The Messiah is going into Jerusalem. Thank you. Um, I still, I don't have COVID, but I just have leftover coughing of COVID. Um, and get this, Jesus comes into, into Jerusalem. It's the same day that the Jews get a small little baby lamb and bring it into their household to inspect the lamb to make sure it's qualified. There's no blemish on it. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem with the, at the same time, and, and for the Jewish mind, for the mind, the guy who is like the Pharisee, they know exactly what's going on. Because in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, says to Jesus, right at the beginning of John, it says, we know you're from God. We know, what you're, we know you're from God. And so that Jesus comes in to Jerusalem so that Jerusalem can inspect. So the Pharisees and the people and, and, and everyone in Jerusalem can inspect the Lamb to see how he is blameless and flawless. And this little lamb, I was thinking about it, you know, this little lamb would come into a house and we have like a little doggy in our house. It kind of looks like a lamb. It's a Westie, white Westie. Um, you know, and these, these pets that we have, they become so endearing to us, don't they? And there's these little kids that, you know, just imagine a little baby lamb comes into your house, running around the house and sleeps with the kids, you know, in the bed and whatever. whatever. And these kids get, really get attached to this lamb. But then, at the end of the week, it's time for the lamb to be taken from the house, separated from the house, and to be a lamb that is bearing all the shame, bearing all the all the sin for that particular household. And it's heartbreaking for the household. They're, you know, they the kids are seeing the little lamb that they love, they slept with, that they played with, being killed. And there's just such a breaking of heart there. And it's the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is with us, you know, as the lamb is in the household, the Jewish household these kids get to know everything about the lamb this the lamb becomes very familiar they get to know every aspect of the lamb and the lamb gets to know them very well and yet at the same time this lamb becomes the sacrificial lamb for the household for all the sins of the household this lamb sees everything that's going on in one week you kind of see everything that's going on in a household don't you and this lamb has seen everything and then he then he sacrificed for the sins of the household the same with jesus jesus is coming into jerusalem as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He comes in, and all of Israel, all of Jerusalem, is looking, is looking at their lamb. And they're inspecting him. And they're getting familiar with his miracles, and his words, and his teachings. And as he does that, he goes in. And this is the 10th day of Nisan. And then this begins the Holy Week. Israel has a king. And this is what is happening this week. The first part of the week. And I want us to go to Chapter, chapter 2 of, of, of Psalms right now, for the last 10 minutes of this message. Psalm chapter 2 talks about this king, that there is a king. You know, when we look at what's happening in the world, we look at what's happening in Ukraine, all over the world, parts of the world that are just suffering just as much or even worse than Ukraine, and that we don't really know about it, we don't talk about it, we don't hear about it, the news doesn't talk about it. And sometimes it's, it's easy to think, who's in control? You know, who's in control? There is a king, and his name is Jesus. He is our king. And we celebrate this Palm Sunday. We're celebrating the kingship of Christ. He is king, and he's Lord. He is our king. We have a king. And that's the first two verses of of Psalm chapter 2. And let me read these two verses. Why are the nations in Tolman and the countries plotting in vain? The kings of the earth establish themselves, and the rulers conspire together against Yahweh and his anointed. Now, How does this relate to the last week of Christ? It has everything to do with it. Because it says here in the first two verses that the world has a king and his name is Jesus. And he's God's anointed. Now why does it say here that it's against Yahweh and his anointed? You know, when we read a verse about Yahweh or about God, we just kind of assume that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are included there because it's the Trinity. They are in the Trinity together. But the writer here, David writes in Psalm chapter 2, He writes on purpose, his anointed. And in the Hebrew, it's that that word, messiah, which we get the word messiah from. The Lord, Yahweh, and his messiah. And the thing here is, is that you could travel around the world, right? And you could go to Iraq. I mean, we've been to some places. Um, Some of you guys have traveled too. And you could ask somebody who's not an American, do you believe in God? And a Chinese person would say, yeah, I believe believe in, in God. Or you could ask a Muslim, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. I believe in God. Or you can ask, you can ask um, someone in India or really anywhere in the world, do you believe in God? And most of the time, someone's going to say, yeah, I believe in God. But when you bring Jesus into the picture, right, when you bring God's anointed, God's appointed and uh, um, commissioned, uh, the representative of the kingdom of God, when you bring in him into the picture, then that means personal accountability, it means relationship it means a person a living breathing talking discerning individual that Jesus Christ God in the flesh there's a funny story i heard one time and it's kind of odd but it just i think it, it really portrays what i'm trying to say here is that there was a man who who uh, really loved his mother and he he wasn't married he lived with his mom he was an older guy and he was living with his mom and um, and his, his mom went away for quite a while. But he had this picture of his mom in the hallway of his house. And he would every day walk by the picture, look at the picture of his mom and just love the picture and just think about his mom. And he got so used to interacting with the picture and his mom that way that when his mom came home, she's knocking on the door. And he says, who is it? And he goes, it's your mother. And he said, no, my mother's right here. She's on the, she's, she's in the picture on the wall. She's on, on the wall. And, 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 and <laughs> the crazy part of the story is that she wasn't allowed in at first. This is what happens with Christianity. This is what happens with us. We get so engaged with a, infatuated with a concept of who Jesus Christ is, a two-dimensional concept, a picture or worship or reading something, that when Christ in the flesh comes to his people... Comes to the people of Israel, people are like, no, 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 no. We're, you're not the God. David's talking about the God. The, the where you know the guy is in the book right here in the scrolls in the in the Bible in the Old Testament. Not you. Here's the guy that we're worshiping. This is what happens because when God comes into the picture with a living, loving Jesus Christ as King, then that means accountability. That means that means relationship and. You know, I think before I got married, I thought you know I was a really great guy and everything's good with my life and you know I can get along with everybody. And then when you get married, it's a whole other story. If you're if you if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. That that it's like every day there is someone that's looking into your eyes and it's, and they're requiring response, they're requiring sacrifice, they're requiring they're requiring some kind of interaction. They're crying. They're requ- I can't even speak. Requiring maybe sometimes crying, or <laughs> crying. They're requiring some kind of sacrifice, some, self, some, some part of like laying down our life and loving when maybe sometimes there's not love coming back. That's relationship. And when we're married to Christ, this is what happens is that people reject. And this is the second thing I want to say is that people hate Christ. People love God, but they hate Christ. They say, okay, Jesus, yeah, we, but he was just a prophet or he was just a, a, a lesser God like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. We have a friend who he's Iranian. We led him to Christ and now he has an incredible ministry of just broadcasting into Iran um, these these messages. And when I first met him, he was just this really big guy, long, long hair, he was an artist, and he wouldn't even recognize him now. And and he said he asked me, he says, Pastor, and he would speak Russian. No, he would speak Russian. I'd speak Russian. I was an American, he's Iranian. And we were looking at his Persian Bible. It was the most interesting kind of interaction that we ever had. And he would say, Pastor, what, who are these job Witnesses? Are they Muslims? Because their theology is so much like Islam. And I thought about it and I said, yeah, you know, the way they look at Christ. That any religion that demotes Christ, maybe even, even in Catholicism, like in Poland, if you go to Poland and you go to some of these churches, you see the, you see the big Mary and the little baby Jesus. That is actually a demotion or a demoting of the personhood of Christ. And whenever that happens, we can understand that there's not an understanding of who the king is. The nations are in tumult. The kings of the earth have established themselves. They conspire against Yahweh and his anointed. Now, we, too, hated Christ. And hatred is not necessarily this venomance or this anger. But hatred, it can be just, it, uh, hatred can be just a form of neglect or just not acknowledging. Number two, we hated Christ. We hated Christ. In verse, in, in, verse, in verse three, let's read this together in chapter two. Let us tear off their bonds and cast their cords from us. This is the world. This is Israel. This is the religious, um, This is the religious structure and system that is saying we will not have this man rule over us. And he says, let us cast off their bands and... And cast off their cords from us, who sits enthroned in heaven in the heavens laughs, and the Lord derides them, and he speaks to them in his wrath in his fury, he terrifies them. you know what's interesting is that when Jesus calls us, he calls us to be yoked up with him. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, and he's saying to his people, "Be yoked up with me in Roman, in Matthew chapter eleven, My yoke is easy. I think sometimes when people think about okay serving God or going on a mission trip or being a missionary, and Pastor Adam Speedes and Africa today and we want to be praying for him his family's here you know and I saw I saw something on Instagram uh, you know he looked like he was in his element he was with all these Africans and he's in the front row just singing and dancing and I thought That's, uh, he looks like he's in his element there and I just you know I was looking at that and I was thinking who would say that this is hard work to do that to be a missionary and I think if we did it if we tried to serve God or do something in the church or do what we do in the church like we're doing worship here, and we have so much fun when we do it. We're laughing, we're enjoying it. It's not for me a grind at all. Because, you know why? Because we're yoked up with Jesus Christ. You know, Franz and Michelle, they're in the kitchen back there just doing all the kitchen stuff. You know, they don't look like they're stressed out. I mean, maybe they, they hide it well, but I don't know. You know, they enjoy what they're doing because there's an anointing. They're yoked up to the anointed one. You know, and others here, if you're a mom or, or you know, whatever you're doing, big or small, if we're yoked up to Christ, Jesus says, yoke up with me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. But the flesh, the religious system, the people of the world look at Christ, and they're threatened by him. They're threatened by his, his righteousness. They're threatened by his law. They're threatened by who he is. And they say, we're going to cast off the band. We're... And I think, that, I think that, you know, as a teenager, I remember growing up, I was just thinking, I can't wait to move out of my house. I can't wait to get out. I can't wait to graduate and go to college and just kind of live the way I want to. Live. I won't have the bands and the bonds of my parents upon me, you know. Just cast them all off, and I'll be in the dormitory. And guess what? You know, when that happens and the bands come off and we kind of live free for a while, we start to understand why there were those limit, why there were those guides in our life. Because, because without these, without the yoking up to Christ, without a relationship with Jesus Christ, without Christ being King in our life. In every detail of our life, there's destruction of our soul. There's destruction of our body. And they're said, let's cast off these bonds. And in verse 6, it goes into this from verses 6 to verse 12. It talks about how we need to have a king. Jesus is our king. comes Comes to Israel. They celebrate him. There's a king. Number two, naturally. In Romans chapter 8, it says the natural mind. There's a part of you and I, no matter how long we've been born again, or saved, or a believer in God, there's a part of us that rebels against God. It actively rebels. It says that the natural mind in Romans chapter 8 is at enmity with God. It's looking for an opportunity to rebel. There's a part in you and I. Yes, me, the you know, the pastor, the guy with the microphone. There's a part of every one of us that just wants to rebel against God that's just waiting for the opportunity to cast off the cords. And there's a part of us that's that natural man. And in verse 6, but as for me, I love this. David says this in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Personal. My king, me as for me on my holy mountain. Three times. Personal relationship. As Christianity, Christianity is not trying to fulfill all the, the, the guidelines in this book. It's not trying to be a better person or change myself or try to be better for my parents or for somebody else so that I can be accepted. But it is really setting Christ as king on Zion. Zion always speaks of where, the God, where God's people meet together. When we come together on Sundays, when we come together on Wednesday nights, okay, it is a gathering together. It's sacred. It's a time when we get corporately renewed. And I love these prayer times that we have during church. I love it because it's a time where we can just kind of reconnect on a spiritual level with people and pray together bear one another's burdens. As for me, I set my king on Zion. Every morning, set the Lord as your king on your mountain. Mountain speaks of government. Mountains, whenever you read about mountains in the Bible, just think government, kingdom, right? A mountain always represents a kingdom, a ruling body, a mountain. On your holy mountain, on your government, on your governmental decisions, on every decision that you make in your life during that day, Because today is all that we have. We don't know if we have tomorrow. We don't know. And yesterday is gone. So all we have is today. Make Christ king um, in your mountain. And it says in verse 7, I will tell the decree Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. I love that. What a missionary verse. Lord, give us the Ukrainians as our inheritance. You know, when we get to heaven... Lord, give us the residence of Magnolia, our inheritance. And I think that if you've done any kind of ministry work where you're pouring into people, and, you're, and, and this can be for a parent too, pouring into our kids, that day when we get to heaven and we stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, we get to say, this is my disciple. I, I saw them receive Christ and, and I got to walk with them in this road of discipleship to the place where they got to grow and they made decisions in their life and I'm so proud of them. You know, is there a Timothy in your life? Is there a Titus in your life? You know, if there isn't praise, God, give me a disciple. Today I've begotten you, and for me I will make the nations your heritage. I love going on mission trips. I love being here. I love living in Texas, by the way. I was thinking this morning, I'm so glad I live here in this state right now. You know, aren't you guys happy? I mean, anybody that's not happy here not, that's living in Texas? <laughs> I'd rather be, This seems like the safest place on the planet right now in this state. Um, and, and God gives us people for our inheritance. When we get to heaven, it's not going to be our good works that we get to show God. It's not going to be all the lack, you know, all the sins that we didn't commit or whatever. But when we get to God, we're going to have one thing to, to show him, and that's just our heritage of people, like our kids. Like, Lord, I, I prayed over this kid. I prayed and prayed and prayed, and it wasn't always great. Or I prayed over these people, or I prayed over this neighborhood. I prayed over this neighborhood I live in. And here are the disciples. I'm giving you these nations as your heritage and your possession, the ends of the earth. And I will break them with a rod of iron like a potter's vessel. In verse 9, you will shatter them. And this is really talking about the, the, the kingship of Christ over the, over the world during the last 1,000 years. And that's another message. And then it says in verse 10, So then, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's for me... Whenever we elect somebody, whenever we vote for somebody, I said this to the Ukrainians when I was overseas a couple of weeks ago, I think your president's great. I think he's such an inspiring guy. He's a great speaker and everything like that. But I would like him to say, he's Jewish, by the way, I would like him to say one time, glory to God. I'd like him to just acknowledge God. I'd like him as a king who has, and it's very interesting. I don't, I don't know what to think of this, but I've never seen uh, like ever one leader of a country Gets so much press and so much audiences and like everywhere he speaks through his, you know, like the Zoom calls or whatever he's doing, like in the European Parliament or, or at these, you know, the, the Congress or, you know, there's always these standing ovations and it's just so interesting. And I think about this. I think about verse 10. Be wise, be, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with tem- trembling. And I want to close with this. Kiss the sun lest ye be angry and you perish in the way. What does that sound like? It sounds pretty manipulative to me, doesn't it? A little emotionally. You better kiss me or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. You know That doesn't sound like a very romantic, intimate relationship going on there, does it? Like either you better kiss the son or you're going to perish in the way. That's not really the way <coughs> we should understand that. Kissing, whenever you kiss someone, it's a sign of submission. When you kiss someone, it's a sign of submission. You're submitting to them. Or if you're allowing someone to kiss you, they're submitting to you. You know what I'm saying? It's a sign. It's, an intimate, it's a sign of intimacy, of submission. Like I'm submitting to you, uh, and, and it's a sign of submission. Kissing the sun. Here, the sun here is like not kissing God. Kissing the, manifest, the physical manifest, manifestation of the sun. What is the physical manifestation today of Christ on the earth? It is what? It's the body of Christ, right? It's you. It's you, every one of you in this room, no matter what you think about yourself, how you're doing spiritually, you are a physical manifestation of Christ on the earth today. And when we meet together, maybe we're not physically kissing each other. That might get a little awkward. <laughs> I mean, there are some churches that do that. Like, okay, now kiss your neighbor. But what it means is that we, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, we're submitting to one another. We're submitting to one another. We're like preferring one another in love. Okay, no, you go first. No, you like we're always preferring people. And that is the, when Christ is king in your life, when you have allowed him to come into your Jerusalem, into your temple, and you're allowing him to be who he is, and you're entering into a familiar, intimate relationship with this Christ, as we see in the last week of, of, of Christ in Jerusalem, what is happening is, is that we begin to submit to him. It's talking about intimacy. It's talking about, it is talking about a a a intimate relationship. Kiss his son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. I think if we don't live in intimacy with God, if we don't live with intimacy with Jesus Christ, if we don't let him speak to us, you know, sometimes I wake up in the morning, I'm like, God, I just need you to love me today. I just can't do anything for you. I can't be anything. I just need you to like love on me. So I'm gonna sit down here, I'm gonna open my Bible, drink my coffee, and I just need you to speak to me (laughs) in your love. And he loves to do that. He loves to do that. Kiss the son. And when we kiss the son, if we're not living, when we're not living in intimacy with God, and there are times in our life when that happens, we're busy. There's a lot of pressure. There's trials. There's stress. There's needs. But if there's a moment where we can just say, Lord, I want to just surrender to you. I want to submit to you as my king. You know what happens? We're not living in this, in this realm of the wrath of God. We're not living in this realm of being perishing. You know, I was talking to our Ukrainians the other day, and I just said, you know, there's so much carnage and horror that's going on in Ukraine right now, but it seems like God's blessing his people. There's so much blessing and so much answers and so much resources right now going into the Ukraine that we've been praying for for years. And Ukrainian missionaries are going out into Europe and they're preaching, and we just had one young lady join the team in Albania. I said, you know, by sight, this looks horrible what's happening, but by, on the spiritual realm, like, you know, when there is this... <clears throat> when this, when there's this carnage and, and terribleness going on in Ukraine God's people are being blessed and it's just a unique paradox blessed are they who take refuge in him, verse 12, last verse blessed are they who take refuge in him our refuge is in a king today and this refuge is is that you know, if you looked at your finances recently, you know, after Christmas things, things kind of dry up a little bit a lot of money goes out the door and for some reason, now it's tax season. Everybody's doing their taxes or maybe they're already done. You know, And there's all this fear that can come in. And you know something? There's refuge in Christ. There's refuge in Christ. When we, when we hide in Christ and we make him king of our finances and we put him first in our finances and we put him first in our decision, we put him first in our marriage, we put him first in our single life. When we do that, there's a refuge there and there's a protection. There's a protection. There was an interesting study done Uh, sociologically with kids at a kindergarten. And one kindergarten had a backyard, like a play area, that had no fence around it. And they would let the kids out and run around and play in this this area that had no fence. And they compared it with another kindergarten that had a backyard play area, but it was fenced in. And their observation was that the kids that were in a fenced-in area felt more safe they were spread out, they were playing, they were kind of using like every inch of the whole of the whole property there. But in the kindergarten that had a play area that had no fencing, they noticed that kids were kind of more huddled together. Maybe there would be a stray kid that would just kind of run off somewhere. But most of them would be kind of hanging out closer to the school. Security and refuge is good for us. Yokes are good for us. When you're an athlete, you know, when you're an athlete or when you are when you're training to to get to uh, be fruitful and to be great in what you dream to do, what do you do? You take on a yoke, don't you? Like Solomon's a pilot, right? He's got to take all these tests all the time. You know, he flies an airplane, but there's so much, there's so much uh, discipline and yokes and, and guardrails and guidelines that have to be obeyed. And that's when we, that's when we are fruitful people. That is when we, that is when we truly blossom as an individual and we discover uh, the guidelines in our life and that the kingship of Jesus Christ. I want to read this last poem to you, and I love this. It's it's written by John John Newton, and he wrote um, he wrote the song "Amazing Grace" that we sing, that we know. And let's see if I can find it. I thought I'd ha- I thought I had it here. And it says, it basically just says this, that when you come to the king, the king beckons you. And when when he calls you, when he calls you, come with big requests. Come with big inquiries. Come with big dreams. Because your king is calling you. And John Newton was saying in this poem, he was saying, if the king of the universe is calling you and I to himself, would he not plan to answer our prayers? Think about that for a second. If God is calling you to himself, if Jesus is coming into you, Jerusalem, this week, and he's calling you to himself, and he's asking you, ask of me for the heathen, and I will give you the world, the possessions, of, not the possessions of the world like we think, but I will give you authority over the world. I'll give you authority over people, over your business, over your family. I'll give you authority over your health. I'll give you authority over things that are happening in your life. And when we come to Jesus, we say, "God, I, want, I just want the whole package." <laughs> As a teenager pray that way. say, "God, I want the whole package. I don't want to miss anything that you have for me. I want the best of everything. You know And when we pray that way, that Jesus has in the inten- hey he has the intention to answer that kind of prayer, because he's king, and he's the king of our Jerusalem, He's the king of our life, and he's the king of our worlds. And when we pray that way, he, is, he, he answers those prayers with great joy. We have a king, we naturally hate him in the beginning. He was kind and merciful to us, and so we need him. So walk into, walk into intimacy with Jesus Christ. Get on your knees, open your Bible, let him talk to you. And when you do that, what happens is, is that he takes us into a faith of adventure that we would have never experienced in the world on our own. Amen? Let's close in prayer.